G'day, humans. Welcome to the show that goes where others don't. The show that rejects partisan squabbling and tribal groupthink. I'm Josh Zepps. I'm your humble warrior princess, hunting down the world's most fascinating minds to wrestle with one provocative question each week. Much of modern culture and politics and media is tailor-made, especially social media, tailor-made to pander to what we already believe and distort what we don't, to reinforce our biases and exaggerate our differences. But change doesn't happen in an echo chamber. It's time to leave the mental comfort zone, to flex our minds and step on some landmines, folks. It's time to have uncomfortable conversations. Today on the show, do you remember by any chance this? The only Republican member of Congress to call for President Trump's impeachment is leaving the GOP. Michigan Congressman Justin Amash has announced his plan to become an independent. He says modern politics is trapped in a, quote, partisan death spiral. President Trump called his departure great news for the Republican Party. And now to a new twist. Justin Amash was the first Republican to support the impeachment of Donald Trump during the Mueller inquiry. And that made him something of a hero to the anti-Trump Republicans and, needless to say, a target of horrendous hate from Trump himself and all of Trump's followers. And he had a front row seat, really, to seeing the total capitulation of the Republican Party away from his libertarian ideals and towards this craven, Trumpy populism that we've seen since uh, 2016. He became a libertarian, and to this day, he remains the only libertarian who's held uh, a congressional seat. He's not in Congress anymore. He didn't run again. Um, some people said, including Trump, that that was because he didn't think he'd get he'd win because he'd get primaried by a pro-Trump Republican. Amash doesn't think that that's true. He thinks he had a lot of support and he could have won, but he didn't want to be part of a party that was going in this direction. He considered running for president as a libertarian himself in 2020. In this conversation, he talks about his presidential ambitions prior to that, maybe even prior to 2016. Could things have gone differently, perhaps, if there'd been a charismatic, libertarian-minded Republican in the field instead of just Jeb Bush and Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio and Donald Trump? He hasn't ruled out running in 2024. A lot of smart money thinks that he may be the libertarian candidate in 2024. I asked him about that, but really I wanted to talk to him because... I think there's an interesting crisis of conscience among people on the right, among conservatives, and I'm interested in talking to people who find themselves stuck, stuck in this intellectual space between ideals that they held about small government and what the new Republican Party has become. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation with the first Republican, really, to stand up publicly against Trump, Justin Amash. Are you nostalgic for that time? For that time of, like, I guess the world being run by the Mitt Romneys and Brent Scowcrofts of the world, and like, you I'm, know, George W. I'm, Bush. I'm Sr. not. Yeah, I'm not really nostalgic for any of that time. I mean, George W. Bush. Um, Sorry, I meant to so say. Just... I meant to say H. W. Bush. Like, I'm going back to yeah. you know, the the old, yeah. old school. Old no, time. even. 
Look, you can um, you can respect people like H.W. Bush and say, you know, he was a statesman, et cetera. But at the same time, um, I, I think there was a lot of indifference at that time to the troubles people were facing in society. And, you know, I'm not sure that Obama and Trump actually addressed the real problems people are facing, but at least they made people feel like they were addressing those things. And um, I think that's been the difference um, in the new politics versus the old politics. Now, what I'd like to see is someone who um, talks about addressing these things is uh, talking about being an agent for change and actually is an agent for change. That really hasn't happened. We haven't seen that yet. But, you know, maybe we're moving in that direction where we start to elect people who are a little bit um, you know, more unusual. They're willing to challenge the system and they're willing to stand up for what's right. You know, I, I mentioned Trump not really presenting that. You know, he talked about all these things, but if you look at policies, really deep down the policies, um, when you look at Trump versus Obama versus Biden now, it's tweaking different things. They, these are not um, wholesale changes that you're seeing. And there can be a lot of excuses for why that is or, or justifications or, or whatever, but um, but we haven't really seen someone who's willing to challenge the system. I mean, when you talk about making real change in people's lives and helping people, normally the rhetoric around having big, major, sort of uh, radical change to the way that we do things comes from people on the left who believe in a robust government intervention into our lives and like using things like social security to lift people up and providing benefits to people and trying to do a certain amount of, it's a, it's an unpolite way to put it, but social engineering to make sure that everybody is more equal. But as a libertarian, what does it look like to you to have a big change that helps people other than simply stopping government from doing things that you don't think it should be doing? Well, I'd like to see more self-governance, first of all, but at the very least, when you look at something like the federal level, how about we just have an actual representative system, one where people can go to Congress and actually vote on things and represent people back home? Right now, you don't have that at all. And I think this is the most underreported thing right now in politics. And I've um, had conversations with you know, major figures in the media telling them, why don't you cover this at all? Over the past decade, we've seen Congress move very far away from anything that represents um, sort of democratic ideals or a representative system. Right now you have the Speaker of the House. I can speak for the House because that's where I served and the Senate has similar problems, but you know, I'm not an expert in Senate rules and the, and the way the Senate operates. So I can speak for the House. In the House, you have one person, the Speaker of the House, who essentially decides everything that comes to the floor and um, decides what's going to be voted on, decides um, whether any amendments will be allowed. And since uh, 2016, there actually haven't been any amendments on the House floor that are offered right on the House floor. And I think to people from other countries, and I don't know how this feels to you, for a lot of people from other countries who come from parliamentary systems and other types of systems, they say, well, what's the big deal? Um, we elect parties and the parties go and represent us in, in sort of a coalition system. And I know when, I, when I've spoken to people from other countries, they feel like 
well, their their own elected officials don't really have that much independence. But here in the United States, we've had a long history and tradition of having representatives in Congress who stand on their own, who do what they believe in, who are there to represent their own community and aren't beholden to leadership. And they can offer um, ideas that radically alter the system, ideas that shake things up. And in the past decade or so, we've moved so far from that where we basically have um, like all of the bad aspects of a parliamentary system, but none of the benefits of it. And um, and sorry, clarify and I, what clarify what the what this change is for people who haven't been paying attention to it. Are you talking about the the aggressive posture of uh, of leaders of the house about whether or not they're even going to bring bills to the floor for a, a vote? Is this the, is this to do with not bringing it yeah. if they, if it doesn't have majority support in the majority party? Well, that's that's one aspect of it. There's, I mean, these are rules that have sort of developed over time, informal rules that um, something won't be brought to the floor, for example, if it doesn't have majority support, What's which is, of course, called, ridiculous. What's by the way, Justin? What's the name um, of that? They, Do you remember? Well, they have the, they have the Hastert rule. The Hastert rule, um, that's right. And this is yeah. kind of just Mitch McConnell being a dick, isn't it? I mean, like, to well, be blunt, that, like in a parliamentary, I mean, yes, you're, you're right that in a parliamentary system, it's frequently the case that the, the government, the, the party with the largest number of seats in the House of Representatives is not going to bring legislation unless it suits it. But you can bring independent members bills and, and, frequ- and people frequently do. And the minority party can mm-hmm. bring bills in. And, you know, then the governing majority party finds itself between a rock and a hard place about whether or not it's going to allow a conscience vote from, you know, occasionally you'll have things that are so sensitive, whether it's about abortion or euthanasia or gay rights or something like that, where the parties will just drop their uh, their standard policy and allow each individual member to vote however they want to. Traditionally, I'm just articulating this for people who don't really know the American system that well. Traditionally, as I understand, it, it's been the case that in the U.S. House of Representatives, everyone can vote on a bill and whatever whatever the largest number of people in the chamber vote for is the way that it's supposed to go. But since, what, mm-hmm. the past decade or so, Mitch McConnell has basically said, I'm not going to bring, I'm not even going to allow votes on things that the House wants to pass unless it also has a majority of people within my own party. So there's not well, even going to be an opportunity to enact the will of the people unless my yeah, tribe is... likes it. This is true of Mitch McConnell and Schumer um, in the in the Senate, but again in the House oh, we're course. talking yeah, about confused. Yeah, yeah, we're talking about we're talking about John Boehner, Paul Ryan, Nancy Pelosi, people who have served as Speaker of the House on the House side, and um, and is the Hastert rule just so the, that I don't get tied up in in pretzel shapes? Is the Hastert rule a Senate rule or a House rule? Well, or I don't both. know if. I it's I mean Hastert was a speaker of the house so okay, we know so it exists about, in the house I can't I'm, I've just I thrown Mitch McConnell you. under a bus perhaps unfairly no, no, it may I mean, have been fine. I mean, we, we, but I ha- yes we, we should yeah we should throw Mitch McConnell under the bus anyways but, <laughs> metaphorically I mean, speaking he, people don't send yes. hate mail yes not, not, not literally violence. yeah yeah so <laughs> but but yeah the Hastert rule um I, I think originated in the house and at least as far as I know it is a is a house sort of idea but it's an informal rule, but it's only one aspect of the problem. I mean, the the way I view Congress as a libertarian is that it should be a place where outcomes are discovered, not dictated. Um, you know, libertarians believe in uh, 
generally ideas of self-governance. We believe in decentralization, moving as much away from Washington as possible and uh, closer to home. Um, but where we do have governance at the federal level, when you're going to have it on a lot of issues like, um, you, you know, uh, the armed forces is an, is an example, right? National defense is one example. Or, um, you know, there are obviously broad appropriations measures that might apply to the whole country. Where you do have those things, there should be a discovery process. It shouldn't be dictated by leaders. In other words, you put uh, some kind of baseline legislation on the floor and, and leaders are going to obviously somewhat determine what comes to the floor in that respect, you know, what kind of baseline legislation. But then open up the process is what they should do. They should say, after they put it on the floor, bring your ideas to the floor. Let's find out what the outcome is. And if the outcome is something different from what congressional leaders envisioned, that's okay. And if the bill comes to the floor and it's amended and then the final product doesn't pass, that's okay too. I mean, that's all part of the process. And to libertarians, this is sort of um, how we envision a system working where we can uh, all live together even though we have different priorities. It's that you just have a, a, a set of rules that apply equally to everyone and you offer your ideas and we can discuss them in a peaceful way. And we may not get the outcome we want and very frequently we won't get the outcome we want. But I'll tell you what, as a libertarian, I'm going to get the outcome I want a lot more under an open system than under a closed system. When you because say... I Justin, when I you do say, believe in my ideas. When you say as a as a libertarian, uh, you know, you've been a libertarian for three seconds in political time. Uh, you were a Republican up until yeah, 20, liber- 2020. I've been a, to to clarify. I've been I've been a Libertarian Party member for a short period of time, but I was a Republican. But I was a Libertarian Republican, so Libertarian philosophically. Got it. And which would be like um, uh, for those listening at home, it'd be more like classical liberalism is, I guess, a way to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, and yeah. I, Cause I get, don't know what the term, I don't know what the term means to the uh, typical Australian as an example. No, I think it's, I think um, it would be the same. I think it would be broadly the same. I mean, the, the term has become somewhat tarnished, I guess, in recent years by being co-opted by a certain wild eyed, uh, you know, kind yeah. of very aggressively gun toting anti-government, uh, like conspiracy theorist minded person. But I think most people still understand the pure term, term of something like, like libertarianism. But the, and so when you got it, when you got to Washington, uh, after having been in the state, house were you were you expecting to find the kind of world that you're articulating because the way you describe what you want the the like the people's chamber to be sounds like goldilocks skipping through the woods like uh having expectations of a of a kind of ancient greek idol of democracy of the demos <laughs> that just <laughs> that is is not d- does not map onto reality well, admittedly, when I entered Congress, I was 30, year, 30 years old, so not, you know, particularly... Not, and not that age different from Goldilocks. Right. So, <laughs> so I, was a, I was a young member of Congress, um, one of the youngest. I think I was the second oldest member at the time. Um, so I did come in a little bit bright-eyed with these, these ideas about how the system should work. You know, um, we all watch Schoolhouse Rock, and we, we think about how a bill is made, and... And you do come into it thinking, okay, I'm going to come in here and 
I'm going to talk about ideas and I'm going to read all the legislation and I'm going to um, really understand this stuff and I'm going to present my ideas to my colleagues and I'm going to persuade them. And I, I did come in with that sort of sense. And I had some reason to believe it would work something like that because I'd served in the state legislature. And although the state legislature wasn't some kind of utopia, um, it was a more open place where I could go as a Republican legislator and speak to the Democratic leadership who were in control of the chamber at the time and tell them I had an idea and that idea could get onto the House floor for a vote. Hmm. Or I could tell the Democratic leadership, um, hey, I think there's something wrong with your bill. Um, you haven't thought through the unintended consequence of this you know, provision. And I've had them hold up legislation in, in the Democratic-led chamber in the state house, where where they said, yeah, you're right. We didn't think about that carefully enough. We're going to pull the legislation for a week or two to work on it. Um, I offered amendments in the state house and frequently had my amendments adopted. Um, you know, it was like almost half the time, I think, my amendments were adopted in the state house. Uh, and that was in a majority Democratic chamber. So I did come in with this idea that with, um, you know, principled persuasion, you could work with people, you could bring them to your ideas and make a difference. And admittedly, when I got to Congress, there was some sign that maybe you could persuade people because we were voting more frequently on amendments. I remember when I first got there, one of the um, first pieces of legislation we voted on, I'm not sure if it was the very first one, but it was one of the first ones. We had, I don't know, hundreds of amendments, if I recall correctly, um, that we could just offer freely on the floor. We could just walk to the House floor, offer our amendments, and um, hmm. people- And this was- people liked it. Yeah, just to, this set, just to set this up in time. Yeah, this is 2010. You came in in the huge Republican wave uh, of the backlash against Obama after the financial crisis in yes. 2010. Is that right? The um, yeah. this, I suppose the Tea Party wave of- that's right. Yeah. So this would be 2011, and I was I was viewed as one of the um, you know new Tea Party members of Congress. I was a libertarian, which there are distinctions, but the the Tea Party movement at the time had um, in in many parts of it at least a very libertarian flavor to it. And I mean, what did it ma- what did it mean to you, Justin, to be part of that movement? Like, what did you conceive of it as calling for? Limited government, um, self governance, uh, free markets. Um, and were you pissed at Obama at the time? Redu- what, was he, reducing... what was he doing that was a- aggravating you? Are you talking about uh, the president, Obama? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so um, spending too much, um, you know, Ob- Obamacare had been passed uh, just before then. So that was an example of the government intervening in um, our health system in a way that I thought was not um, appropriate or or ideal, not suited really to... To our system, I don't think they actually fixed the problems with our health system by passing that. So um, it was just a general a general sense that the government was um, assuming too much power and spending too much money, and we were losing a lot of our uh, community autonomy, like as as communities across the country. You know, the United States is a big place with um, over three hundred million people. And the idea that you're going to have someone in Washington or a small group of people in Washington 
dictating everything to the whole country is is not something I support or believe in because it's it's I think it's harmful to what makes America actually great, which is our diversity. You know, we have we have a diverse country with people who have different ideas and different ways of living and different cultures. And we should embrace all of that. And when you centralize everything in one place, you're actually cutting against diversity. It's, it's ironically something Democrats often talk about, like they love diversity. But the idea of centralization is anti-diversity by nature. Like the, the idea is we don't believe in your diversity. We're going to decide everything in one place and dictate it to everyone. Mm. And, and so I'm, uh, that really was something that I was against. Um, that that sort of centralization. So I entered Congress as part of this Tea Party wave. But, you know, there were other people within the Tea Party movement who maybe had more um, nationalistic views of things. I'm certainly not nationalistic in that sense. I, if anything, um, I'm, I'm be the opposite of nationalistic. You know, I, I, I don't believe in centralizing um, things like culture or, um, you know, sort of this identity mm. of self. I mean so, that's in, that's an interesting you know side angle to the to your comment about diversity as well, which I think is a good point. There's often a lot of hypocrisy on the left about what diversity means. I mean, I've I've run into constant experiences in the media where there's endless hand wringing and uh, you know self consciousness about making sure that, for example, a panel is really diverse, and you frequently end up with people who look very very diverse and they sort of tick the identitarian check boxes, and they're all saying the same thing. And I say, well, right. what kind of, you know, by what metric are we measuring diversity here? It's great that you've got a lot of women of color and you've got a trans person and everything, but they all believe this, basically the same thing. Like, is it, should we also consider diversity of opinion, diversity of thought? I mean, I think the left-wing pushback to your claim about central government not respecting diversity is that amid diversity, one way to make diversity flourish is for there to be minimum baselines of well-being that only a central government can assure. Now, that doesn't mean that the US government does it particularly well, but in a lot of social democracies, you might say, nobody's going to go bankrupt after getting hit by a car, so we're going to have some kind of universal healthcare system that may not be perfect, but it's going to provide this level of baseline. Maybe Obamacare wasn't that, but something could be. And that something is something that you would still object to as a libertarian. Well, I think it's important to think about the size of the United States. So uh, when you look at um, countries in Europe, or if you look at Australia, even they're much smaller countries, you know, um, California itself would be a relatively large country uh, in other parts of the world. So we have these states in the United States, 50 different states that are actually uh, pretty populous, you know, they're pretty large states. And one of the brilliant instincts of the founders was to allow these states essentially to compete with each other, to um, maintain their own sense of um, how they're going to handle difficult issues so that you actually get a variety of options out there, a variety of solutions, and they can learn from each other. And when you centralize everything, you might end up um, creating a system that is bad and bad for everyone and then harmful to everyone. And so I'm, I understand the, um, the argument uh, for healthcare, for example, saying, well, we need to um, have some kind of uh, baseline. I understand all that, but I don't think the way to do it is as through the federal government and having some kind of federal standard that 
cuts across the whole United States. There are ways to do it through um, states acting on their own or through markets that I think would achieve uh, many of the the same outcomes that people desire without the drawbacks. Right. But it, but in any case. Also, the idea I'll, of let me just briefly, as an aside, yeah. note my objection to the to the size argument, which comes up all the time when I talk to Americans. I just sort of call <laughs> moderate bullshit on it, in the sense that you're right. Like the European Union is 450 million people to America's 330. I know it's not the same country, but it's all they they have met, figured out a way collectively to provide uh, extraordinarily complicated services and. And everything, I think, is scalable. I mean, if a country of one million people, there are certain things a country of one million people can't do and certain things that a country of 330 million people can do. But if you have 330 million people, you have a much larger tax base to be able to fund things through. So it doesn't mean that you're going to be able to organize and coordinate everything from a central planning committee because it might be too big to do that. But only the dumbest social democrat in the world or a true communist would be trying to do that. Most social democrats and European-style welfare state people would say, of course, delegate to local communities and to states how they distribute, how they get the job done, but provide central re- centralised requirements that if you are living in you know, Australia or Denmark or Canada, then you're going to be entitled to X. And if you want to be a libertarian about how that X gets decided and delivered and managed and handled, that can be as close to the to the beneficiary as you want it to be. It doesn't have to be coming from some Politburo, but you can set baseline standards. And, you know, one example just to wrap up this rant that I'd sometimes give to Americans is if you think that like, oh, America's just too vast and complicated for something like Medicare for all to ever ever work. There's no way it would just end up in a tangle. I say just imagine a parallel universe in which the the US is not a military behemoth and has a sort of Costa Rican military attitude with very, very low spending on the military. And someone comes along and says, you know what, the United States should have a military that as a proportion of its GDP and its population is significantly larger than any other democracy. Americans would say, what are you talking about? We're way too big for that. There's no way that we could afford it. Can you imagine how much it would cost? What about the logistics? Where would we put all the all the plants? And well, now we live in that alternative world universe where all 50 states have massive military industrial complexes and trillions of dollars get spent on the military. And it is possible because someone decided to make it possible. I'm not saying it's desirable, but I'm saying that population and size has not proven to be an impediment. Well, first, I would say that the European countries have a lot of autonomy still. I mean, they are part of a union, but they've maintained a lot of autonomy. And the ultimate conclusion of where we're going would be having a one world government. I mean, if if you're going to say that, well, it makes sense to have the United States decide everything as a whole or Europe decide everything as a whole. And I don't see what the argument is against a one world government um, where the people of the United States and the people of Europe would actually be a small percentage of the the total population and they'd have their lives essentially dictated by people across the world. Which brings me to another point that I think is often missed when it comes to size, which is that People talk about it, but forget the political aspects. People don't like being ruled by people who are far away from them. They don't like the idea of someone far away deciding things. So even if it were um, practical from the sense of, you know, we can actually do this, we can gather the tax base and we can 
um, we can efficiently find a way to, to dole out the resources. It's not practical from a political standpoint. It creates tension. And that tension is harmful to our system overall. And we've seen that actually ramp up in, in recent years. I mean, all of the fighting we're seeing now in the United States between Republicans and Democrats, between the Trump people and the Biden people and people who hate Trump and people who hate Biden, it has to do with how much power we've put in one place, the federal government. And if that federal government didn't have all that power, a lot of this stuff would dissipate. You wouldn't have all of the political tension. So I think we can't just think about it in terms of, you know, what could actually work? Like, could it, um, you know, just from uh, like ignoring human nature, what could work just on paper? Mm. You have to think about human beings being involved. And humans just don't like to be ruled by people who are far away from them or super different from them. Just like I think Europeans or Australians or Americans would not like to have a one world government where uh, maybe Asia is in control of it because they have just a massive population. Mm. No, I think that's a good point. And I, I guess the the extent to which people resent being ruled from Washington, D.C. would have to be greater than the extent to which they feel resentful and disrupted by the circumstances that are beyond their control that they feel that nobody is doing anything about. And that that frustration, I would argue sometimes comes from a failure of leadership. Uh, and, and so there are two things there, are, you know, there are two potential factors that could cause the kind of disruption and partisanship and, and hate that we're seeing in American politics at the moment. One, I'll grant you could be that, you know, power is being wielded by abstract forces too far away from them. And the other could be that, government just isn't doing anything very constructive. Uh, and so they've, they feel like they're adrift. And if there was a good, competent central <laughs> government, if there was, <laughs> you know, I don't know what the example would be right now, but I suppose maybe if you, if you appeal to like, I don't know, 1980s or 1990s style governance in the United States, uh, then perhaps arguably people would feel like their lives were more on the right track and, and, and that resentment would soften their uh, their hatred somewhat. But I, this is all getting a little bit yeah, academic. Yeah, maybe, maybe, but we live in a different world because of social media. And I think there's um, there's no way to go back to that time. You know, people want to go back to that time and, and I hear that a lot. Um, if only we could recreate those days because it seemed more peaceful and people got along more and all that. But part of the problem is social media has connected us all um, across the country. And now people are arguing about things that have nothing to do with themselves. Like, yeah. um, you know, like something happens in some far off city and you're complaining about it. You know, people will see on the news that someone was um, shoplifting in San Francisco and they'll lose their <laughs> minds. Um, yes. Even though like, you know, you live in some <laughs> other part of the country, you live in, you know, Georgia or something mm. like, what does it have to do with you? Uh, so now we're we're like in a world where we fight over some obscure mayor from some city um, or some obscure, you know, police chief somewhere because I don't know, we just want to be mad about things. And and I don't think there's a way to really go back. Um, I think the only thing we can do to reduce the tension actually is to uh, embrace a sort of decentralization. And that doesn't mean, um, I think, some kind of radical um you know, uh, hands-off approach where like nobody is connected to anyone else anymore in the country. If anything, I think it means um, more diversity, 
more embracing of other cultures and other people because you start to develop a respect for people when you don't feel like everything's being shoved down your throat. And I think that um, I think that we can move to a better place if we would just stop being involved with each other over every mm. minuscule. Um, it is. I mean, it is terrifying. Like the nationalization of all conversation. It's yeah. I. I, It's now it's becoming international too. Yeah, totally. Like look at look at um all the people in the United States. uh, Whether it comes to uh, whether it's Australia or Canada, like everything is like now, um, making everyone mad. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. No, no (laughs) yeah. The Canadian truckers are you know a global story. The Australian lockdowns were a global story. You know, and you know the culture wars in America have managed to to piggyback on America's success as a as a cultural empire and sort of infiltrate all of the way that we talk everywhere about things like race and you know transgenderism and things like that. These these rather arcane conversations that are that generally inhabit uh, university educated white progressives in Brooklyn and like the Bay Area of California. These are now the way that people talk about things everywhere in the world. And yeah, I don't know how, I mean, I share your desire for greater diversity, greater localism, greater expressions of, uh, of sort of local sentiment and can do attitudes that actually fix local problems. Um, so let's get, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about your worldview and this, the way that you're talking about things here is, I can't remember when I first noticed you, but one of my problems with the the wave of opposition to the Obama administration that you were part of when you came in was that a lot of your colleagues and supporters, I felt, were just being hypocrites about which bits of government they wanted and which bits they didn't want. Like there was a lot of like, oh, Medicare is fine. And, uh, like, you know, the, the military budget is fine, but, and, you know, even public education is fine. And all these other things that strike me as being somewhat arbitrary that a government would be doing, like it's not, it wasn't inevitable that old people should get free healthcare. It wasn't inevitable that schools should get public funding, but hospitals shouldn't like things things are contingent. They've gone other ways in other countries. I mean, imagine if in America, instead of there being public schools, there were public hospitals and everybody paid for school. And then a, you know, a president came along like Obama who wanted to do Obama schools instead of Obama care and provide public funding for schools and everyone would be going crazy. Like it just, to me, it just, it seemed like there was no underpinning principle except for, except for, a except for fury, except for just a sense of like, this far and no further was that, but then I get a sense when I don't remember when I noticed you, but I I did notice that at least you seemed to be more reactionary. And I mean that in sort of a good way in the sense that you were like, no, it's not just that we are going too far right now. It's actually that the whole edifice of what we have sort of outsourced to the government to do has to be rethought. Is that a fair way of putting it? Like, should we start, like, should Medicare be abolished? I think that you should move away from systems like that. When when you ask things like, should it be abolished? I think people get the impression that you're going to um, introduce a bill that tomorrow gets rid of Medicare without thinking through the consequences. And, and I don't think libertarians who are serious about that, um, about libertarianism, operate that way. 
In other words, it would be a whole process working through how are we going to address the shock that would happen? You know, there'd be a, there'd obviously be a shock to the system when you change things that have been built up over many years. So I do believe in having a very different system from what we have. Um, and I believe that you can get there through localism, but I do not believe that it would entail the types of shocks that people think they would face because you would do it incrementally and you would do it through um, states uh, acting up where the federal government uh, loses power. So, for example, um, you might reduce federal taxation, but increase taxation at the state level. I, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that if the people of that community decide that they want to do that. I do think that there is something inherently wrong with continuously moving everything toward the highest level possible. I think that's dangerous for our country um, and dangerous for indiv individuals. So I would love to see a system where we move taxation as close to home as possible. You might, uh, for example, have the local government having the highest level of taxation and the federal government having the lowest level of taxation, which is the opposite of how it works right now. But it doesn't necessarily mean no taxation whatsoever. Um, because I look at this stuff all as um, a sort of scale, right? Like it's it's like um, it's not like go there's government or no government. Mm. There's just governance at different levels, and we all form governing organizations to make decisions. Sometimes they're very small organizations. Sometimes they're not voluntary. Like you're born into a family that makes decisions, right? Right. It's it's another form of governance. Um, you might have <laughs> tell been, my four-year-olds you know, that. Yeah, they're fully aware <laughs> yeah, that you, this is a this is a dictatorial, tyrannical dictatorship that I'm running in my household. Right, and and you might run your house like a dictatorship, and that a lot of parents do. That might be that might be how it works at at home. But as you get to higher levels of governance, like the federal government, you obviously want to have um, less control at that level, where they have less control over your daily life. And uh, more, and you naturally have more of an ability to, um, or you have you have less of ability when it's at the federal level to get away. So you want to make sure that it's limited in its its scope. When you have mm. a, a local government or something very close to you, you have more of an ability to escape it. Yeah, um, and we're seeing so, that at a state level. I mean, in, there's been a huge exodus over the course of the pandemic from states that people feel were, uh, you know, mishandled it to states that people feel did better. I, I know about four friends who left thing. California to move to Texas. And it's a good thing that we have a country still where you can do that, where someone can move from one part of the country to another part of the country because they believe that the system they have in their own state is not the best system. They mm. prefer some other system. I think that's a good thing. If you make it all uniform, I think that's a problem where the whole United States has one system and you can't escape it. Um, and then it's just like uh, an all out fight for who has control of the so, levers. Uh, Justin, what would the federal government do? I, I understand your reticence in it, sort of throwing bombs on yourself that you're going to have to then clean up it, it, by saying something that sounds like you want to detonate Medicare right now. <laughs> but let's Let's park the how we get there and just talk pure political philosophy for a second. What's the what's the proper role of a of a federal government in a state like the United States? Should it be just about securing the borders and basically having courts and things to resolve contractual disputes and a police force to enforce the law and all welfare, food stamps, public schools, 
hospitals and things like that, that you know, Medicare for old people should be should not be part of its purview? Well, the the Constitution provides the blueprint. Um, the federal government should be focused on things that actually have um, national scope. In other words, um, something like uh, uh, defense of the country, like the armed forces, has national scope. And that doesn't matter whether you're in a state of um, five people or a state of five million people or 50 million people. You, you want to be protected against foreign invasion or foreign attack. Um, you have a, a similar uh, outlook on the on the issue. Um, so where there's a lot of um, cohesion, where there's a lot of similarity in, in how people view the issue, you'd have the federal government involved. And I think the framers of the Constitution did a pretty good job of figuring out where that is. And it's primarily in areas of um, national defense. Um, to some extent, they were concerned about commerce and they, they sort of established the United States as a free trade zone. And so they gave um, the federal government some uh, supremacy to ensure that goods could flow freely across the states. So there are a few areas where I think um, they uh, rightly thought, hey, the federal government could have a role here to ensure that there's something that benefits the maximum number of people where you're getting, where most people are going to agree on the issue. Um, the average person will agree. But then when you get into details about people's lives, um, and this could include healthcare, uh, because the way people live their lives in a rural part of the country is not the same as someone in uh, an urban area like New York City. So when you get into sort of these sorts of issues, and there are lots of issues besides healthcare, of course, mm. but when you get into these sorts of issues, uh, you want local governments to make more of the decisions or, or um, states or individuals. Mm. Um, you just want to bring it to the, to the lowest level possible where they can, um, you know, do something that is, that has like a, a, a majority or some kind of consensus uh, for the issue. And, and I don't see that at the federal level, you don't really have a lot of consensus on most of the things we're fighting about. You certainly don't. And I mean, uh, that would be an argument for keeping the the things that you try to do at a national level as ba as universal as possible, right? I mean, I think I think you're, one thing that you're pointing to that I noticed, uh, noticed as a non-American living in America was how delusional the American left is about what they think other social democracies are like. Like they think, they really think that it's milk and honey and like free everything for everyone in Denmark and Canada. And I've lived in Denmark. I went to university there for a semester and I've lived in Australia, which is basically Canada. Uh, and, you know, it's not. The, the, if you could not, if you wanted to create Medicare for all in America the way that American progressives think that you would, you would bankrupt America because the health system is so unrestrained and uh, incredibly over overly uh, opulent in the States. I mean, uh, not in a good way. I just mean that... So much is covered by private health insurance there. I mean, I I had an experience where I there was I was I was working at HuffPost in New York, and the there was like some company that gave like sp spinal back sort of massages and like orthopedic type analyses, and they came in for free at one lunchtime, got me to sign up for like a weekly massage, 
I did like 10 weeks of this weekly massage with this little machine that would go boom, 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 boom down my back and felt really nice. And when I finally saw the invoice that they invoiced to my private health insurer, it was something like $15,000 for <laughs> 10 weeks. And there was no diag- there was no like clinical reason for this thing. There was a copay that I had supposedly been paying that I hadn't been paying, but they don't mind not taking the copay, of course, because they get the money from the... And like I just found this again and again and again that there's there's a system where there's really no there there are no none of the normal cost controls that either a private system or a well run public system should have in place. It's this crazy sort of hybrid, and I think a lot of American leftists yeah. think that they could just have all of that and it would be free. The reality is, in a in a you know in a a well run free healthcare system like Australia has, which is the one that I know the best, which is also called Medicare. And I have a Medicare card. Everyone has a Medicare card. You don't get just whatever you want. Like, you know, you talk to your doctor and the doctor will prescribe things. Any specialist you see has to go through your family doctor, your primary care physician, which means that there are gatekeepers inside the system to make sure that costs don't balloon. I can't just go and get an MRI because I'm I'm scared of it. And a lot of Americans, I think, would feel like that's an imposition on their on the way that they've come to understand healthcare. They should be able to get some get a procedure done just because they're worried about it. And doctors should be working in the service of the patients and the patient's consideration should be the only consideration. There should never be a financial consideration. That's not the mindset of doctors who work in a publicly funded system. Of course they want to look after their patients, but not at any cost, not at the cost of like bankrupting the the, the state. So I, I yeah, I'm taking I'm sort of granting you that the the complexity of the of a centralized public system is you know the more complex it gets the more deranged it becomes from a practical application to people's lives at at a granular level i just don't think that that means that you you can't do it at all i just think it means that you have to agree on on simple baselines like okay well you know emergency public hospital care you know at the very least let's make sure that anybody who is in an in an emergency gets treated for free, for example, and doesn't have to pay it back. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. I think a lot of people do not realize, um, you know, what are the trade offs, and and people there are people who might say those trade offs are just fine, but I think a lot of Americans would say no, that's not fine. And when I look at the United States, and I, you know, I'm on Twitter, and I see the the more extreme end of it when you when you're on Twitter, mm. um, <laughs> you could say you, that again. You see people who are so diametrically opposed on a lot of these things that I'm not sure how you would ever create one system that works for all of them. Um, the The left, when I'm when I'm on Twitter, when they think about um, the right, I I feel like they think these people are you know like horrible people uh, who shouldn't exist i mean uh, this is these are the comments i get on um on twitter and the stuff you get from the right similarly like the they think the left are you know beyond stupid or naive or gullible or whatever it might be Mm. um and i'm not sure how you resolve any of that through some kind of one size fits all system like i don't i don't know how you get anywhere with a system like that uh, I don't know how it doesn't just increase the tensions uh, overall because people have such different ways of living in the United States and such different um, perspectives on things that, you know, I I think people are sort of naive about this. Yeah. And part, 
part of that naivety comes from when you look at um, uh, a lot of people in on the left in the United States, they tend to live in very um, concentrated areas like uh, urban centers, New York City, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago. They live in areas where they run into people who are like them every day, who agree with them on things politically. Um, so when they hear about someone who has a different perspective, they don't even, they can't even relate to it at all. Mm. They don't even know anyone who has that perspective. Mm. I think actually there's some sense in which people on the right have a better understanding of people on the left than people on the left do of people I on the right. I think that's true. I mean, I've said that for a and, long time. Yeah. And I, and I say this as someone who, I mean, I don't have, um, you know, much affection for what the sort of hard right does in the United States and the politics of it and all that. You know, I've been very much against um, Trumpism and this national populism that's arisen out of it. And at the same time, I recognize because I've been at the receiving end of so much of the um, animosity from both the right and the left, I... I can see that the people on the right tend to think that I'm just stupid or naive when they criticize me. And the people on the left tend to think I am evil or um, I have some kind of ill motive. Right. Uh, sometimes you'll be accused of racism. Like whatever the case may be, there is this view on the left that if someone doesn't share their values, that person is a bad human being. Yeah, or even and, if a person has a different idea about the means to get to common values. Uh, I mean, the, you know, I think you can test, you can actually test this by just asking people to articulate the worldview of their opponent and see how well they do. Yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, and if you, if you ask most conservatives, I think, I'm not talking about, you know, far-right people, but if you ask most conservatives what a progressive's worldview is, uh, they're likely to do a fairly good job of saying that the progressive thinks that government should be used to help people and to lift people up uh, and that, you know, that conservatives are mean and that uh, that progressives care about people and want to make life easier for people who have been traditionally sidelined or something like that, you know, which is a broadly true, um, not caricature, but like characterization of the progressive worldview. But if you ask a progressive what a conservative thinks, I don't think that they will be able, they're, they're less likely to be able to say uh, that the conservative feels that that attempts to use government to fix problems are likely to cause more problems than uh, progressives believe that they will, that the, the, the best arrangements over the course of, of, you know, over the long arc of history have tended to be ones that allowed people to make more localised choices for themselves and to, to feel freer, even if that comes with, uh, you know, certain the, the trade-offs of individualism or whatever it might might be. The progressive is likely to say, Conservatives want money for rich people and uh, yeah, they're mean and they don't care about poor people, which, of course, is not the way that conservatives think of themselves. So, you know, you've got, a, yeah. you've got an impasse there between what you even think that you're, you're in opposition to. But I want to talk, since we're talking, you know, I mean, I don't even know where to get into Trump. Why don't we start by just talking about what you, so you're in Congress, you know, it's not functioning necessarily the way that you think that it ought to in the second term of Obama. Let's go to there. So 2012, 2013, 14, 15, as the Republican primaries begin, did you think about throwing your hat in the ring and running in 2016, by the way? 
Yeah, I actually did. I, it's something I don't really talk about. I've never, I'm not sure I've ever talked about it, but I did think about um, at that time, even running as a libertarian. Hmm. And, um, you know, I talked it over with family and a few people, a few friends, and ultimately decided against it. And actually, it's it's maybe one of my biggest regrets um, in my life. Not, not running as politics. a libertarian or not running as a Republican? Uh, not running as a libertarian. I think that um, by the time I had, I felt really strongly about it, you know, that I should jump into this thing, uh, the Republican primary had already moved. I hadn't really thought about, you know, jumping into it initially, but as I start to see that this was headed toward, um, maybe a Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump matchup, uh, where you had two people who were so, um, you know, disliked by the public, Generally, I mean, we we had polling on this just in my district, and the polling was astonishing to me. Like my approval rating was way above water. You know, like it was it was quite high. My disapproval was low. Then I would poll on Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, and the approval was like twenty percent for each one and sixty percent disapproval. And I was like, "What is going on here? Like, how could two people so reviled by so many people?" be the nominees for the party. And so I did, um, I did have some inclination at that time, like maybe I should jump into this race um, and ultimately decided against it. But I, the, the only reason I would have done it at the time is because I was ready to starting to see that Congress was headed in the wrong direction. You know, even, even a few years ago, like, you know, say 2015, 2016, I was already thinking about getting out of Congress. Like, you know, this is not the this is not the type of body I envisioned mm. um, when I entered Congress. You know, it's not really a place of legislative activity anymore. It's more just, um, you know, pushing a button that someone tells me to push and then I push the other button and then they get mad at me. Um, and and so there wasn't really much there for me. Like you couldn't actually offer le- offer amendments. You couldn't get your legislation on the floor. So I was already thinking about maybe I need to try something else um, to shake this up because ultimately what I'm trying to do is um, improve the system. I'm, I'm an introvert by nature. Like uh, politics is actually not what I would naturally want to get into at all. Um, I, I, I got it. I got into it um, with the understanding that this was not my forte. This was not what I was um, comfortable with. And the, the country was too important. You know, uh, I, I, I'm the son of a refugee and um, the son of an immigrant. My dad's a Palestinian refugee and my mom is a Syrian immigrant. And so for me, keeping the American dream alive is so important. And I, I convinced myself that I need to get into this even though it's not comfortable for me, even though I don't like politics, even though I don't um, you know, like all this stuff where I have to go give speeches and be in large crowds and all because I'm an introvert by nature. I said, I'm going to do it anyways. Um, and I felt, you know, around 2015 or so 2016, Hey, Congress wasn't really turning out to be what I thought it would be. You know, I'm not able to, even though I've, I've sacrificed a lot by coming here because I don't, it's not like my cup of tea. Um, it's not turning out the way I thought. And I was about to 
maybe take another adventure and say like, well, maybe I have to run for president, even though I'm I'm also not comfortable with that. <laughs> yeah, I got to tell you, Justin, uh, if, if the reason you don't like <laughs> politics is because you're an introvert who doesn't like giving speeches in front of big crowds, then going from the House of Representatives to the presidential political campaigning is... Uh, <laughs> yeah, is, uh, I know. I could, I could talk to you about career choices, young man. Believe uh, me, I know. And, <laughs> and being, a, being, being a libertarian also like is a part of that, right? Like libertarians are all about privacy and, yeah. and individualism. And, and you know, so, living living free and all that, and like when you run when you run for office, especially if you ran for president, you lose all of that. Like I can't absolutely. go out to dinner anymore. I can't, you know. So, like I really am, you know. And so just naturally put, put me in your head, then Justin. You, it's 2015, and I, I guess I guess Jeb Bush is going to be the the nominee. Uh, and there, there's Marco Rubio and then, you know, there are a few other people we had, you know, Herman Cain and, you know, some people like that, I guess were floating around, uh, you know, Ted Cruz. I don't think anyone, I don't know about you, but I don't think anyone serious thought that Ted Cruz was going to be a, be a popular politician at a presidential level. Um, and, and then there's, you know, Trump is just this crazy sideshow that clearly is, who clearly is not going to get the, the nomination at that point. Do you think to yourself, mm, I can probably, I can probably give Jeb Bush a, a run for his money? <laughs> no, no, I wasn't gonna. You know, I, for, I wasn't supportive of Jeb Bush, but I also wasn't thinking let's let's jump in against um, Jeb Bush. Like I, I didn't know how it would turn out, but I didn't feel like he had the the juice really to get through it, and I wasn't sure how it was going to go. Um, at the time, I was supporting Rand Paul, right? Um, of course, who was who was a. a friend and ally and um and certainly more on the libertarian side of things especially at that time and so i was supportive of of him um and from my perspective look he was claiming the libertarian republican lane there and um right look, I, I was to, give, to, to jump in would have been to to screw him right yeah. yeah so you know i think that we can't have too many people in that lane if we want to be successful let's Let's let him pursue it. Um, he was obviously interested in pursuing it long before I was. So, and has I, he I now was, had to basically abandon that lane and become uh, a sort of Trumpy bootlicker? And you've had to exit the party. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to frame it that way. But I would say he's definitely um, jumped onto the Trump bandwagon. I mean, I mean, do you talk to I, him about guess, that? Have you spoken to him? I've spoken to him a few times. Um, not since I've left Congress, I have not, but, um, but, you know, in the later days of, of my time in Congress and, you know, he was, we've always had friendly, a friendly relationship and, um, you know, I don't have, I don't have anything bad to say about him in, in that respect, you know, like our relationship has been good. I, I'm, I've always been a bit disappointed and it's, it's a strategic issue, right? Like he, he made a strategic call about how to proceed and I don't agree with it, and I'm sure he doesn't agree with my strategic approach on on the whole thing. But there came a point where he decided that going with Trump was more fruitful than going against Trump. And I, to this day, do not believe that. I think that's a mistake for libertarianism. Um, it's a mistake for spreading our ideas. And I think I've been proven right on all of this. I mean, unfortunately, Trump has been associated with libertarian thinking without any justification because a lot of libertarians jumped on the bandwagon and said, yeah, he's, you know, I'm with him. And I think that has hurt libertarianism because now there's this caricature of libertarianism that it's something like Trumpism. And I think that's very damaging to the brand.
because it's nothing like Trumpism. So you get the worst of all worlds. You get Trump, who wasn't libertarian in almost any respect from uh, you know a governance standpoint. And then now you've, you're tying libertarianism to it. And he's also a guy that is generally disliked by a lot of people. Um, his, his, uh, his MO is to divide people rather than bring people together. Mm. And libertarianism to me is about human cooperation. So, so yeah, I was, I was disappointed. Um, and especially because Rand Paul in the early days, one of the ironies I think is that when he was running against Trump in the, um, debates, you know, I would tell Rand, I think you're focusing too much on Trump because he would take shots at Trump all the time. He'd go into the debates and he'd take a shot at Trump. I'm like, Rand, they're only giving you like a minute or two to speak and you're spending it all taking shots at Trump. You got to like cool it a little bit, you know, focus on what what um, you want to get across. You know, what's the message you want to get across? It can't just be Trump is bad. So uh, the irony is I was telling him that at the time. And um, then as soon as he became the nominee, I mean, at least shortly thereafter, things really changed. Like I was, um, I was never uh, supportive of Trump, but I at least understood why in the debates, you might want to focus on your own message and stop worrying about Trump. But then as soon as he became the president, you know, the nominee and then the president, you've got to stand up for what you believe in you just because it's a republican doesn't mean you're just gonna you know walk away and let him do whatever he wants and why yet, did so many people i think he i mean he captured the imagination of the republican base and then there was no fighting it right um for for basically any of them well yeah i mean you were you the know, first I, you were the first republican I, congressman to to call for his impeachment yeah, but so I also I also was someone who from the very beginning in my district had really prepared them for this. Like nobody in my district was really caught off guard that I might support impeachment of a president for executive overreach. I mean, it's like <laughs> I've been talking about it for I've been talking about this stuff for years and would hold lots of town halls. People knew pretty well where I stood on executive overreach and abuses of power. It wasn't like I was going to be like, well, he's a Republican and so we're good to go. I mean, I'd been criticizing my own party for many years already. I criticized Republican leadership so many times. And I, was, I had been hoping that some of my um, sort of Tea Party colleagues who were also willing to criticize Republican leadership would, would be willing to criticize Trump. And a lot of them said they would be willing to. I mean, I remember during the during the um, presidential race where a lot of them after he became the nominee would say, you know, if Trump wins, we'll have the chance to prove that we'll stand up against someone from our own party who does the wrong thing. But then as soon as he became president, at least shortly thereafter, um, that all fell apart. And it, it was pretty gradual in the first uh, couple of years. And then it, it fell apart very swiftly um, toward the end of 2018, I would say. Mm. But it was... Um, yeah, it was, it was tough, but nobody should have been surprised by my take on it. No, but know? I mean, I, I guess I, there like, was a there was a backlash there of some of some kind in the sense that you left the Republican Party and you didn't run again. Yeah, but it, uh, to to me, it was less about uh, could I be successful in my district as a Republican. I believed I could um, because I had been very active in the district in terms of um, 
holding town halls, being engaged with people, answering their questions, explaining my votes. I'd been very engaged in that stuff for many years. I think it would have been a tougher race than I faced before, but I, I think that's one I could have won as well if I had run for a re-election as a Republican. But I really lost interest in being a Republican at the time. Well, also, it I just, mean, when you say if you'd run as a Republican, wouldn't you have to have won a primary in order to run in the general as a, as a Republican? And yeah. wouldn't you have gotten primaried from some Trumper? who? Oh, I, I was already going to be, you know, people already lining up. As soon as I said right. Trump, um, you should face impeachment. The people already lining up uh, to jump in. And even before that, you know, there were people who thought I was not sufficiently supportive of Donald Trump who were who were probably going to jump in even if I didn't support impeachment. But I believed in my district. I believe the people know me, understand me, and that I could have won that primary again. Um, But there are a lot of people throughout the country who had not prepared their district for this. Like if, if you were very partisan from the beginning, you were not, your district was not prepared for this. Like you were not prepared for what for Trump or for the capitulation of the Republican Party to Trump. The no, I'm saying elected officials, members of Congress, who didn't prepare their district for the idea that there could be a bad Republican, were not in a position then to tell their district, okay, now we have a bad Republican, we have to stand up against him. Right. Um, They they were so partisan for so many years that to do so would have been um, like a political suicide. Right. They were I can, playing I can a game actually of, understand of, that. Of tribal party yeah. loyalty rather than, yeah, ideas and governance. They had, they'd essentially trained their voters. Like if, if you think about it, in my district for years, I had been saying to my voters, I represent all of you. I don't care if you're a Republican, a Democrat. I was willing to challenge my own Republican leadership. Um, I was willing to support democratic positions that I thought were right. I'd taken on, uh, on immigration is a good example, where I'd taken positions at times that upset the Republican base um, or uh, some civil liberties issues, including things like, um, you know, challenging uh, police abuses. So I'd, I'd taken positions already that showed I was willing to challenge my own party. So my constituents knew where I was coming from and they were electing me every year, both in the primary and in the general by overwhelming margins. So they knew where I was at. But if you look at another Republican, they had been training their district for several years that Democrats were the total problem. Republicans were not so bad. Republicans were good. We're not going to criticize Republicans. Um, when they talk about who they represent, they talk about representing Republican voters. They would ignore the Democrats. They had a very different view of representation than I did. And so their whole base was just Republican voters. If you polled their district, the Democratic support for them was very low. Whereas in my district, I always had pretty good Democratic support. I had pretty good crossover support and certainly very strong independent support. But for my colleagues in the Republican Party, the vast majority of them, they're basically getting all of their votes from Republicans and none of their votes from anywhere else. So if they turn on their own base, if they say, hey, our Republican is a bad guy, they're not winning over the Democrats. Those people are not coming over, um, at least not in large numbers, and neither are the the independents. And the Republicans are going to be like, hey, what? This is not what we signed up for. Like, what is the who is this guy? When We, uh... we signed up for the guy who's partisan. 
Justin, when you declared your independence and uh, and said that you were leaving the Republican Party and said that you were disenchanted with party politics, uh, the President Trump, in all of his magnanimity and graciousness, uh, tweeted, uh, knew he couldn't get the nomination to run again in the great state of Michigan, already being challenged for his seat, a total loser. Great news for the Republican <laughs> Party, as one of the dumbest and most disloyal men in Congress is quitting the party, uh, Trump tweeted uh, about about you. Um, did that surprise you? Did that lead to any subsequent, you know, backlash or social media storm from his followers against you? What was the aftermath of that experience like? It didn't surprise me. Um, I, I don't know that it led to any additional backlash. I, from my perspective, the biggest backlash was more of a national one than anything local. And that was when I took a position on the Mueller report uh, in favor of impeachment. And that got me a lot of people calling the office, um, a lot of messages, a lot of very hateful things um, were said. And I had a lot of, um, uh, frankly, racist things said to me as well. I mean, a lot of things that I never experienced in my life. Um, You know, I I mentioned earlier that I'm uh, Palestinian and Syrian ancestry. Yeah. And there were a lot of things that were said to me that throughout my life I had not heard. you know, in, I certainly didn't hear it in my community growing up that suddenly came out where people were saying things to me on the phone or uh, via email. And I took the position that I wasn't going to publicize all this stuff. I think it's a mistake when you're an elected official to go off and say like how um, at risk your life is and like how many people hate you and all this kind of stuff. I don't know why elected officials say that stuff. I think it's a mistake. Um, they just make themselves a bigger target. So my view is just to keep moving, um, move along and, you know, not make a big, big deal about it. Um, and, you know, I knew what I was doing and, and felt confident that I was right in what I was doing. So it didn't bother me. Um, and doesn't bother me to this day. But as I've said, I the the backlash I get from the left now for criticizing Biden, it's basically similar um, without a lot of the uh, racial slurs. It might be the other way where I'm just called a racist. You know, it's like so in one case, the Trump people will call me, uh, you know, use some racial slurs, some of them, not most of them. And then the other way, the Democrats will and some again, some of them will say that I'm racist for holding a position. So mm. I get hit on, I get hit every which way. I'm both the, uh, <laughs> I'm both the, you know, subject to racism and the yeah. cause of racism or something. Tell so me about like, it. Yeah. I'm, I'm a, I'm a white supremacist <laughs> for not being woke enough. And then to the, uh, you know, to the, to the alt-right, I'm i I'm an authoritarian bootlicker right. for uh, having some respect for, uh, you know, uh, for, for government, for governance, for good governance. I, you'll enjoy this tweet, Justin, that I got, uh, uh, yesterday, I, I, <laughs> I tweeted, there was a journalist in Australia who interviewed the Prime Minister who's facing re-election in the next few months. And uh, they did the usual gotcha question of how much does a loaf of bread cost and how much does uh, like a, a pint of milk cost? You know, I don't know if that is, has a long history in the States, but it's the sort of mm-hmm. the thing that people get asked. And I tweeted, like, what is the journalist trying to do exactly here? Like, why has this become a popular thing? Like, as far as I'm concerned, if you're, unless you're below the poverty line, you're buying milk and bread, regardless of what they cost. And it's just going into your shopping cart, and then you're not paying any attention to it. Like, why? uh, uh, Yes, if you're poor, then you know what milk costs. 
But is anyone under the impression that the prime minister is poor? Are, are they like, like, is the journalist <laughs> thinking that, that there are going to be a lot of viewers going, oh, I thought the prime minister was, you know, right, just scraping it by. Like, what's the point of this question? And I'm, my point was just like, if you want to see whether or not the the prime minister is in touch, then you could ask like, what does the average grocery cart cost? You know, like what's the, what's the average family's grocery budget or you could ask like what maybe what does steak cost or something like that something where the average person actually does make a decision about whether or not to buy it or not buy it on the basis of the price and the amount i mean i've had tens of thousands of tweets in the past 48 hours justin's talking about oh this could only come from a place of tremendous privilege and like i'm you know i don't understand what it's like and i don't care about food price inflation but i thought this one was particularly good this is from someone who says what such vile, evil, insensitive creature at Josh Sepps. So just like the disgusting, evil, racist eugenics, you want to get rid of the poor, black, and so-called undesirables. Josh Sepps, you're a cancer in our nation. You are an evil seed that must be uprooted. Hashtag racist Zepps. Hashtag evil. Oh, man. So this well, is it the, looks like you're getting it the yeah, same way the, I get it. This is the forum in which we are like adjudicating and coming to agreements about so what the future the, do you is think important. So- do you think someone who says something like that is is a real person or I like, sometimes wonder are these, that. Are these I, I bots? Don't I, don't I don't know. know. Like sometimes I, I get stuff and I'm not because increasingly people aren't using their real names, you know, it's anonymous accounts and they say stuff like that and you don't know whether it's just someone trolling trying to get a reaction I mean there are too whatever. many I think well who knows but like there are a lot like and and some of them are blue check marks like uh you know so one blue check mark person retweeted me saying spoken like a man with true privilege is this tweeted joke and so then I think that uh you know that's someone who knows that they're intentionally throwing red meat to their followers uh, even if it is nice steak, a filet mignon, uh, red meat to their followers, <laughs> to their followers, because they know that I'll be taken out of context. Like it's such, I mean, I yeah. just tweeted back to that saying like, I'm surprised that anyone took that bait. It's so easy. Like it's such an obvious thing to say about my tweet that it shows that I'm privileged because I don't, I'm out of touch with people for not understanding the price of milk, but that's not actually, I'm still waiting for you to actually re- refute my claim that it's a stupid question or that most people, even if they're not poor, don't actually know what, what milk costs but and so then people follow up on that saying like one says he's just another piece of shit sucking at the public tit he needs to be cut off i think that's a real person or what's another one here you think you're part of the normal people zips you think more absurd examples from twitter is going to make you look normal normal people can see through your gaslighting from miles away you psychopath i think that's probably a real person like i don't know i don't know what what the how the proportions break down has have you gotten more backlash because you've said supportive things of Joe Rogan. Has that caused some backlash or no? Um, like weirdly, maybe more um, people just more targeting you coming in and saying like, look, he's he's one of the bad guys now. No, actually, no. Actually, the, the majority of the hate still comes from the anti-lockdown, uh, freedom-loving uh, sort of alt-righty people. I, I don't want to call them alt-right because some people think I mean white supremacist or like fascist. But in my lexicon, I just sort of use alt-right to mean a kind of a maybe Mike Cernovich sort of Tim Pool kind of uh, like ecosystem of people who are uh, not necessarily, you know, right-wing in a conventional political spectrum, but they're like adjacent to the shit-stirring brigade who take great pride in caring more about tyrannical world government than you do and in getting hysterical about each you know instance of government overreach or elite uh, media manipulation or whatever that might be so that i think that cohort 
are where I get most of my grief from. And that's probably still from stuff that I've said in public, especially on forums like Joe's show, uh, where I'm trying to bring a bit of nuance into the conversation about under what circumstances um, pandemic restrictions are justified. Because there's a, this is another area in which your cohort has gotten a bad name and has not covered itself in glory, frankly, by having a very absolutist attitude towards um, COVID lockdowns and restrictions. Again, I think exporting American the American experience to the rest of the world so that, you know, when a lot of these people hear about, I don't know, a quarantine uh, hotel or a quarantine facility in Australia where people are locked up for two weeks when they enter the country during the height of the pandemic. Uh, they think of Gavin Newsom at the French Laundry uh, having lunch, you know, in contravention of the very rules that he has put in, or the Californian government like taking bulldozers and covering skate par- outside skate parks with sand so that teenagers can't mm-hmm. use them. And all the and or masking of children or the shut, shutting down of schools, all of which have not happened in in Australia at all. And there's been, I think, a more you know you can argue about the the examples of overreach, and I'm incredibly opposed to to instances of police brutality or or persnickety police enforcement of arcane rules. But as a general rule, those things I regard as being an independent question from the question of when is it okay for a community to enact emergency measures that uh, require hard sort of lockdowns and clampdowns on their freedom in order to liberate themselves for the subsequent duration of the pandemic until, you know, until the, the time is right to allow it in. Anyway, that's all a long roundabout way of saying, I think it's it's in the weeds of that discussion that I get the majority of hate. I think most people who hate me for for standing up for someone like Joe Rogan, well, for standing up not for someone like Joe Rogan, for standing up specifically for Joe Rogan during all of this, they know that they're being disingenuous because I've never said that I agree with every single thing that he said. I'm taking a a free speech attitude to this and Mm -hmm. I I don't know that you can be principled and object to that. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, for me, one of the central principles of liberalism, like classical liberalism, is free speech. And so um, I, I don't know how anyone really objects to that. I, I, I always hear these arguments about, uh, you know, the marketplace and, well, Justin, as a libertarian, uh, don't you support what the marketplace is doing? And if, if the marketplace says, take Joe Rogan off the air, isn't that what you should support because you're a libertarian? But that's that's absurd. Libertarians don't say that we support every outcome the market produces. We're saying that the market is one of the best tools we have for achieving liberty. It's not the only tool, but it is one of the best tools we have for achieving liberty. And if the market ha- produces an outcome that is antithetical to liberalism or freedom, then we're going to be against that outcome. Um, and I certainly think uh, there's a difference between objecting to someone because um, you have your own uh, personal issues with them or maybe something about their behavior you don't like, uh, as opposed to saying someone should be taken off the air because you disagree with them or because they invite people onto their show who present uh, information that you think is wrong. Mm. I, I think that mm. there are those are there's a huge difference between those things. You know, what's, if you want to boycott someone, boycott someone, uh, you know, that's, that's your business, but that's very different from saying the reason I'm boycotting them 
is because I think this person should be taken off the air and I think we need to work together to get this person off the air. Mm. I mean, especially when it's so hypocritical because, you know, if you're a musician and your music is still on Apple Music, I mean, what do they pay the people in Shenzhen factories making the iPhones again? Like, what are, you know, like... Right, and and also, like, look at musicians just uh, as a general rule, the kinds of things they've been able to say freely thanks to freedom of speech um, and put into their music over the years. Uh, they should be embracing the idea that people will challenge the system and say things that are unpopular. Um, we we can't base freedom of speech on whether we like the actual, you know, words being spoken. No, that's, I mean that's, that's not actually not. Well, yeah, it's not even the point of free speech at all because of course we right. like the of course we like people saying things that we like. Like that's not free speech. That's just talking. Right. <laughs> it's, it becomes free yeah. speech when we have to bump and, up against things that people saying things that we don't like. And sometimes in America because we have the first amendment here people um get confused where they think that free speech is the same thing as the first amendment when these are different things right the you know the first amendment is protecting you know your freedom of speech from government censorship but and and while private censorship of speech may be allowed under our system under our constitution it doesn't mean that it's not um an attack on free speech. Mm. You know, it can still be an assault on free speech, even if it's not protected free speech. So as a, as a libertarian, and I think sometimes because we in America are so used to thinking of free speech and the first amendment as almost being synonymous, like they're one and the same. Um, we we get this confused a lot, and they're yeah. not the same thing. No, I, that, the, that frustrates me as well. When people, I, I think it's way too cute for people to be like, "Well, these social media companies are private companies, and Spotify is a private company, therefore they can do whatever they want, and there's nothing inconsistent about it's not a First Amendment issue because the government's not doing it." And I'm like, "Well, would you be saying that if it was someone who you cared about, like, or if it was you being excluded <laughs> right. from these platforms? These are the places where the public has conversations with itself. Like, you know, if you're not on there, then you're you're not really able to speak. How do we, Justin, let's, I want to let you go, but how do we turn the volume down on all this? I mean, if you, if you, well, you can take this in one of two directions or we can do both. I think there's a political thing that I'm interested in your thoughts on. And then there's a cultural thing that I'm interested in your thoughts on politically. If you run in 2024, I assume you'll run uh, as a libertarian. Uh, If Trump is the Republican nominee, you may split the non-democratic vote uh, and you may uh, enable the Democrat to win. You can either prognosticate about that or you can pass on that prognostication. And then the cultural question is, I feel like we're all just dialed up to 11 all the time. And uh, Mm -hmm. the woke left is emboldening the right-wing Trumpy crazies and they are emboldening the woke left and people who can reasonably disagree about things in the center are left holding their dicks in their hands, as my grandfather would have said, uh, and not being invited to the party. How do we change that dynamic? So for the first one, you know, I don't know whether I'll run for president or run for any office in the next uh, few years, but I would say when someone runs for election, they're not causing someone else to win or lose. You know, people get to go and vote for whoever they want on the ballot and they can vote for uh, a Democrat. They can vote for a Republican. They can vote for a Libertarian. They can vote for someone else if they want. And if we 
take this mindset that anytime someone is on the ballot who's not a Republican or Democrat, that it is just helping one of the other two parties, then you are just perpetuating the problem. Like the problem never gets resolved. And there are millions of people, I'd say a plurality of Americans who prefer some alternative. They're, they're tired of being tied down to the Republican nominee or the Democratic nominee. When you look at polling on this, independents outnumber Republicans and Democrats. And it's it's getting to the point where they outnumber them easily. You know, it's a significant margin by which they outnumber them. Why shouldn't all of those people have someone to vote for? Um, they are largely voting for the, the two candidates, Republican or Democrat, because they've been left with few options. There hasn't been uh, a serious alternative that's presented, that's been presented. And to the extent um, we've been getting candidates in the past they have been less serious because of the narrative, because of the narrative that they can't win. And so even the people who run for these positions are not as um, strong as they could be. So I think we just have to break through that. Someone has to say, um, I'm going to do it. I'm doing it regardless of how it impacts the other two candidates. And if you don't like me, don't vote for me. And if you want to, you know, if you want to vote for the other candidates, go for it. Mm. But if you want something different, um, vote for me. Again, I haven't decided what I'll do in the future and what office I'll run for if I run for any office. But I do think that libertarians and independents and people in other parties have to be bold and say, we're going to challenge this. But we also have to work on our election system here in the United States. I, I think that um, election reforms where you have things like ranked choice voting or other alternative methods for electing people would be extremely beneficial because with a first past the post system like we have in most of the United States um, and the design of our constitution, you inevitably create a two party system. You know, it's, it's kind of inevitable with this type of system. That doesn't mean these two parties must endure. It doesn't mean that one of the two parties couldn't be replaced by the Libertarian Party or by another party. But it does mean that you tend toward creating two strong parties. And one thing that could help break that up is having a different election system where, um, where people run essentially on their individual qualifications and character. And you have, we have ranked choice voting and people have more of an opportunity to get, to get by even if they are not tied to one of the two old parties. Um, so that's what I would say about that. As mm. for, you know, how do we get past this point culturally, like where we're at? I'd, I'd go back to what I said before. If you decide everything in one central repository in Washington, D.C., if you put all the eggs in one basket and say, this is it, whoever controls this, this basket here controls everything, then of course you're going to get all of this fighting. Of course, you're going to have people um, thinking it's a life or death struggle. And I can tell you that it's increasingly difficult for me to convince people on the right that um, the proper outcome is liberal democracy, that the proper approach is some kind of system where um, we all decide things together and there's the rule of law. And um, and we try to live peacefully with each other. Mm. Increasingly, people, I think, believe there's a big fight coming. Uh, 
And it's uh, it's like a life or death struggle for them is how they view it. Yeah. And that if they don't if they don't stand up and fight, they're like, well, we're just sitting ducks. You know, you're they'll, they'll say to me, Justin, you're being naive. Like they might agree with me on a lot of my principles. They might agree with me on a lot of um, what I believe in libertarianism. But they'll say, but but where you libertarians get it wrong, they'll say, is that you still believe in the system. And we, the people telling me this, don't believe in the system. Hmm. We think you're wrong to believe in it. The, the They increasingly think the founders were wrong about the system they designed, that it's not compatible with liberty, that um, that essentially you have to defeat your enemies at this point. And there's no way around it. It's just um, one side's going to win and one side's going to lose. And are you going to stand with them or are you going to stand with us? And that's how it's increasingly framed. And the the left is helping to fuel, I think, all of this by not um, understanding why some on the right are skeptical about centralized power, concentrated power, um, restrictions on freedom of speech, why people on the right are concerned about all that stuff. I think that if people could li- learn to um, live within their own communities and think about what's going on in their own er- areas and help the people around them instead of worrying about people who are halfway across the country all the time and what are they doing and how are they running their school and how are they running their police department? I think we'd be, we'd all be a lot better off, but, but again, this requires us to, to push things away from Washington, push things out of the, um, you know, the, the centralized system that we have. And I, I don't know how you get there except through education and um, conversations and efforts at persuasion. I, I don't know how it's going to happen any other way. It's not going to happen spontaneously through government. You know, the Congress is not going to wake up and say, we got to do things differently. And, and the, neither is the White House. The answer to our problems will be President Amash, the first libertarian <laughs> president <laughs> in 2024. Justin, it's, uh, it's great to talk to you. Thanks, thanks for your time. I'm, I'm so glad that, uh, that we were able to connect. Thanks, Josh. I really enjoyed it. And um, maybe I'll have you on my podcast sometime. I'd love, I'd love to. to talk to you. Yeah, no, I'd love I'd... to talk to you about it. I just started it. It's, just, it's, nothing, it's not fancy like yours. But... I just saw it come up when I, when I was Googling you earlier, and I felt embarrassed that I hadn't listened to it, but I look forward to hearing it, the Justin Amash podcast. Yeah. Thank you. It's nothing fancy, uh, but you know, I'd love to talk about Australia. I, yeah. I love talking about these kinds of things and um, no, I'd trying love to understand. To. Yeah, because I think there'll, underst- be an, there'll be an interesting difference of opinion between and a constructive one between probably your worldview and the utterly perplexing worldview of the <laughs> of the the Australian lockdowners, uh, which I can hopefully articulate. Yeah, I love that stuff. I think exchanging ideas, learning about people from other places, is uh, is the way forward. You know, we have to try to understand each other and and bridge all those differences all right. and accept that, accept those differences, you know? Good on you, Justin. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll speak again. And if I'm ever, if I ever find myself wandering across the frosty plains of Michigan, I will give you a call. <laughs> all right. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks Josh. Man. Really Thank appreciate you. it. Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Sepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.